three years ago, we were maybe like 50 people. We had maybe raised, I don't know, like $20 million or something like that. Today, all of these numbers are different. We're now like to over 500 people. We're, we've now raised, I think, 200 and something million dollars. You stop counting at some point. Uh, and, uh, and it's been quite a journey, but I, I think like, what I've noticed most is uh, the, the, the thing that I've learned most is this idea that the strategy has, is so much about knowing what you don't do. And Intercom itself, our product and our idea, which I'm not going to sell you on today at all, don't worry. Uh, but we have a kind of a big idea, but like, so the, the essence of what we get right is all the things we say no to. Um, but the reason I want to talk about strategy, the reason I think stra why strategy matters uh, is because at some point when you go beyond your initial group or your initial team in a company, you actually, you can't scale anymore. You can't make every decision yourself. So what you find yourself doing is like having to come up with ways where you don't make every single decision yourself. And that's certainly where we found ourselves in years two, three, four. We're now in year seven. And I'm now firmly of the belief that any time I make a decision, it's a problem. It reflects something wrong in the org if I have to make the decision. It means we didn't communicate something. It means that for some reason, I know something that somebody else doesn't. And if they knew it, they'd be able to make that decision. Uh, the way I explain this to people within the company and to all of you all is that here is like what our team looks like without a strategy. Everyone is doing good things, but collectively, they don't bring us anywhere. Now, every single one of these blue arrows, they're good people. You know, we, we like them all. We want them to stay in Intercom. But collectively, they're not doing anything uh, like as a group. And what we need to do is get them somewhere more like this. Right? We need to have everyone adding and empowering each other so that holistically they move. Now, you're probably wondering how long did it take me to do that effect in Keynote, and it took quite a while. Uh, but um, but like, and like, that was probably the biggest lesson in like years maybe three and four, was like, how do we get everyone onto the same page? And that really is hard, because you have to articulate everything about what you think about the world and everything you're trying to achieve, and take feedback from your team, and make sure that everyone understands it. And then, and for us, this was just in product, and then you realize, well, it's not just the product folk, right? Because it's, you've got sales, you've got marketing, you've got analytics, you've got your brand team, and all of them need to be on the same page too. You have the same problem at this macro company level. Uh, if you don't get this right, uh, you'll be making wrong decisions in different units. It'll, what you'll find out is like the brand team are growing a brand that attracts people that are nothing to do with the product you're selling. And the product you're selling, the product your sales team are like, ringing people and talking to them about, has nothing to do with the product you're building. And, uh, and that's a bad way. Like, the decisions you make and the strategy you set has to ensure constantly that you're building the thing that you want to sell and that you're selling the thing that you want to build. And if you can get that simple piece right, you're so far ahead of so many companies. Just literally build the thing you're selling and sell the thing you're building. If you can, and that's literally the alignment between product, sales, and marketing. Um, but as I said, so much of this comes down to decisions, the decisions you make, either as founder or as head of product or as product manager or engineer or head of engineering. Uh, every decision you make will highlight some type of a missing principle. It means some information is out there and you're the only per person that seems to have it. And if you want people in your company to make the same decisions you would make, they need to have the same information that you have. Otherwise, you're going to spend your entire time course correcting, micromanaging, 
uh, you know, pissing people off, overruling people's work, and it's really, really bad. The types of decisions that I used to get hit with all the time, should we build a Marketo integration? The sales team want this feature, are we going to build it? Should we integrate with this? Only two, only two users want this thing, but they're really, they're really valuable users. A competitor just launched this, should we build it? And if all of this has to flow through you, you're literally not going to be able to do anything else. You'll be the most ineffective leader you could possibly imagine. You'll spend all day replying to emails, which most of us do anyway, but it's not a good look. Um, and what I try to push everyone in Intercom to do is to sort of find areas where you're hit with a frequent question or a way to sort of find a generalizable question. And from those, you can find an actual principle. So as an example, right, uh, something we hear a lot in Intercom uh, whoa, I think there's an animation kicking in here or something. Oh, there we go. Something like, you know, we get this question all the time, should we build a JIRA integration? And what we try to do is say, well, what's the general principle here? So I could answer this question for JIRA, but tomorrow I'll have to answer it for fog bugs. And the day after that, I'll have to answer it for some other tool that I've never heard of. Uh, similarly, at, down here we get this other type of thing, which is these are rare questions, but we can, summar them all, we can summarize them all into sort of a general, what's our stance on integrations? And if I can articulate that question once, I save myself hundreds of emails. And this is what I mean about turning the decisions you make into principles that everyone in your company can then use. It makes them so much more powerful and it saves so much of your time. And if you don't do that, the rest of the strategy actually doesn't matter. Because it, you need to be able to communicate to your team in this, in this abstract form so that they can behave like the true leaders you want them to be. Um, and that's the first piece I just wanted to talk about. It, it, it's such a core idea to strategy. And the sort of the next areas we'll talk about are a bit more tactical and a bit more grounded, I guess. But uh, the, the next biggest question I get, and I, I invest in startups, I advise startups, I work in a startup, I've started a load of shitty startups, and one good one, um, and, uh, as, as I'm sure you all have. Uh, and uh, the question I get most is, what should we build? And, and the best answers I can have, again, in the form of principle, is one of them is this. You have to build a product that is viable, feasible, and desirable. It's very simple, but so many startups, especially with a lot of funding, can get this wrong. You need all three of these things. If it is viable and desirable, but not feasible, you will have a company like Theranos. Everyone wants to be able to have blood tests at the single prick in a second, Right? Everyone wants that. It's just unfortunately not possible. Um, if it doesn't make money, everyone wants it and it can be done, you'll have a company that folds in a certain amount of years because people stop funding it. And lastly, you can have something that makes money and it sure is possible, but no one ever wants to buy it. And that's where most startups end up. Um, another point I often make to people is the types of problems you solve. So I, you know, we see software everywhere. You're all using, say, a conference app for the next web right now. You probably all use a tool like Eventbrite or something like that to buy your ticket. Uh, there are, like, there's software everywhere. And you, when you sort of think about what problems should you solve, one of the areas I'd encourage you to think about is only solve problems that are big or frequent, but preferably big and frequent. And I think this is something a lot of people get wrong. Uh, not all good software will get you a good business. You can build a really, really beautiful product that's perfectly engineered, zero code debt, most liked project on Dribble, whatever you want, right? Uh, but it could just solve a really small, really rare problem. 
And in that world, it's just not going to be a successful product. And the one thing that a product must be able to do is sustain itself by making money to fuel the people to work on it. And it's really hard to make any money in this lower left quadrant. If a problem is big and rare, that's okay. People will spend a lot of money to get rid of a big problem. If a problem is small but every day, that's okay. People will spend a little bit of amount of money or they'll launch it every day and they'll look at ads or they'll do whatever, but it's, it's a significant enough problem. But the sweet spot, and to give you some examples, like uh, charging your customers is a big problem that you want to do often. That's why Stripe is a big business. Talking with your teammates is a big problem that you want to do often. That's why Slack is a, is a popular business. Uh, sorry, talking with your teammates. Yeah, talking with your users is a big problem that you have to do often. That's why I would argue Intercom is, is, is like in a good place. Um, just bear in mind, don't solve small, rare problems. Another piece is, and this is especially true for those of you who are coming from a consulting background, is uh, be wary of solving problems where you have to do a lot of high-touch interaction with the customers, as in you need to go on-site and work with them. You need to phone them for every time a new customer comes on board. You need to manually onboard every single person because you can't do it automatically. If you have high-touch onboarding, as in humans are involved for somebody signing up, it, the accounts need to be really, really expensive for it to work out. Otherwise, you'll lose a lot of cash. Um, so that's just three practical things about the types of problems you solve. The biggest thing where startups tend to die uh, or like really struggle, in my experience, is on this issue of scope. How much software should we build? How much workflow should we solve? Uh, how many features should we have, et cetera? And <clears throat> the way I articulate scope a lot is I try to tell people, just think about where your, start, where your product starts and where your product stops. And Here's a simple, and bear in mind, every product exists in someone's life alongside other software. You are not the only product that they launch. They, they were using a tool right before they used your tool, and they'll be using a tool right after they've used your tool too. And it's important to understand that you have this narrow window in time where your product is, is relevant. So how do we take this person from, I need to grow my business, to my revenue is up, everyone wins. Now, there are many ways that this can happen. We can say, grow an audience, send messages, qualify the users, start conversations, put them into Salesforce, schedule demos, negotiate deals. And you can try and build all of that software. And it's quite a lot of software. But, you know, and it might be tempting because in reality, like, you know, we're all software people. We like to think we can product our way out of any situation. But uh, it's dangerous to take on so much work especially in the early stages, but it's actually, generally it's dangerous anyway, because the chances of you making every one of these little bits of features correctly, and then having customers who correctly use all of them, is really slim. Uh, so what I would usually say to people is, start your product at the first point in this, in this sort of uh, path where you can add new value. So where are you doing something new that's useful? Are you faster? Are you easier? Are you cheaper? Do you work on more devices in more ways? Whatever. But have an idea of why somebody will start using you at a certain point. Uh, and then when you have that, work out, hey, what were they doing right before they launched this product? And how can we make it easy for them to jump into our product? Can we use like a Chrome extension to drop them in? Can we import their email? Can we import their receipt? Can we do something to make it easy to transition? And then on the other side, where do you stop? It's easy to just keep going, right? Uh, 
But you have to stop, especially if the next step is done by a market leader that you're not going to fight. You probably don't want to fight Amazon if the next step would be like purchase hosting. They're going to be better than you. You maybe don't want to fight Salesforce if the next step is create a sales record. Salesforce are there way ahead of you. Similarly, if the next step is done in loads of different ways by all of your different customers. So as an example, payroll processing is done 186 different ways in 186 different countries. So if you want to like, actually say, oh, and we'll go and do payroll too, you're now adopting 186 different features. Or lastly, if it's something you just can't innovate on, it breaks my heart to see companies be like, all right, and now we're going to build you know, uh, voice over IP telephony in as the next step in the sales tool. And I'm like, I think the phone works, or at least it works well enough for now. So it's important to work out where you stop as well. And then obviously, how do you make it easy to jump onto the next step for them in their process? And that's how you stitch into someone's workflow. You make it easy to, to, for them to get in and easy for them to get out. Uh, here's what that actually looks like, because I think it's good to have a practical example. Uh, here was the earlier flow, and a lot of startups will say, okay, that's cool, that's just 16 features we need to build, and then we're done, yeah? And I would say, no, it, it's absolutely not 16 features. That's like four products. And you need to decide which product you want to build. And you pick that product, and you say, okay, this is our feature. Now, how do we make sure that it's easy to get started at this point, and how do we make sure that it's easy for them to get to their next tool? And that's how you scope down, right? You find the piece where you can add unique value, you transition from the previous step, and you transition to the next step. And if you can do that really well, you're in a great position. I generally call this idea the Scopilocks principle, uh, following from like, you know, the Goldilocks story? Is Goldilocks a relevant fairy tale? Uh, does everyone know who Goldilocks is? No? Okay, some people are nodding. So I'm not going to tell you the story of Goldilocks. I actually don't have the time. But basically, the gist of it is uh, you can have stuff that's too big, or in this case, too hot, too cold, or just right. You'll have to look it up afterwards. Uh, in scope terms, what I'd say is if your product is too big, no one can adopt it. If your product is too small, it is not worth adopting. You need to find the right amount of size that's actually worth paying for where you're adding enough unique value relative to the overhead of your customer having to have yet another product. So that's how you should really think about this. The last piece I'd say on, on this point is around how you build. So I've told this story a couple of times, and apologies if you've heard it before, but uh, you are, there are effectively two ways you can consider baking a wedding cake. Let's suppose you're getting married tomorrow. You, uh, you can sort of say, okay, I'm going to put all my effort into making a cake base, and then when I'm done with that, I will make a filling for the cake, and then lastly, I will make icing. And then at the very end, I will hope to God that it all tastes good. Maybe chocolates and carrot is not a nice flavor. We will find out. Uh, and I would say that this is not a great way to bake a cake because you don't want to find out at the last second that your oven doesn't work. You don't want to find out that the flavors are terrible or that your icing gun is broken. A different way to make a cake would be, let's make a cupcake. And if we make a cupcake and it turns out the oven doesn't work, well, we'll know. I and mean, then we can fix and adapt and react, right? Or if it turns out that chocolate and vinegar and carrot is not a nice flavor, well, I'd rather know that now than the day before I get married. Uh, and if the cupcake does taste good, we can make a cake, and then we can make a wedding cake. 
in general, we call this the cupcake principle in Intercom, and I'm forever saying to people, like, people will pitch fantastic ideas, really great ideas, and I'll say, okay, that's cool, that's a brilliant nine months worth of work that we could commit to, but is there a cupcake version? Can you show me something in a couple of weeks, some version for some really restricted use case that just tastes good enough that we know that we should actually go on this? Because otherwise, it's a really risky bet. So to recap on what you might build, I would say build products that are feasible, viable, and desirable. Don't solve small, rare problems. Start and stop your product in the right place. Uh, bear in mind, your initial release shouldn't be too big nor too small. And lastly, think in cupcakes, not in wedding cakes. Now, alignment is the very second you, there are more than a product team in your company. The very second you've gone beyond founders or you've hired your first three product people and one person who does sales and marketing and support or whatever, you'll have this problem of alignment. Uh, and alignment often comes down to like you need your company needs to have a good sense of a mission. Like great products fight to achieve a mission. Slack want to be the place where work happens. Stripe want to increase the GDP of the internet. Intercom want to make internet business personal. Uber wanted to do transportation as reliable as running water. Twitter was to be the heartbeat of the planet. A company called Consider are doing uh, email designed for work, and. That's like, once you can get everyone on board on what the actual mission of the company is, that's the first uh, sort of step you have. And then the second one is, okay, so we have a mission, and Intercom has a mission. We want to make internet business personal. But then we also have a set of unique opinions and values. Uh, unique meaning that it's not just things like do good design or shit like that, right? Like it has to actually be meaningful and unique to Intercom. And we say things like, we always design for both sides of the conversation. Most workplace software designs for the business, not for the user. We always integrate with the top tier marketing uh, stack. We always work on mobile. We just have these principles that like, because we have them, no one ever asks me, is it important for this thing to work on mobile? Like, no, of course, you know it is because it's written there on the wall. It's one of our values. Um, and you need to have these uh, and share them with not just your product team, but with everyone. Because the people selling your product have to know what you're building. The people building your product have to know what you're selling. Um, the other piece I would say on this is, as you grow out these teams like sales, like marketing, uh, like, uh, say, customer support, um, be careful about putting them in different offices, on different floors. S disconnecting them in any way is risky, right? Uh, bad things happen when people have their own ideas about what you're doing, and then they go and iterate on them. So you might say, our product team says, oh, Intercom's engaged product is all about the right message to the right user at the right time. But if you listen to a sales call, you might hear like, well, we have the fastest way to import an email list and start a campaign. We're like, well, no, we, you know, that's two different things. And if, if we let them keep iterating and having their own offsites and Running, uh, you know, running their own little uh, sort of uh, think tanks and whiteboard sessions, it actually gets worse, right? They iterate and they iterate and they iterate, and they get even further apart. And we end up with like, well, we're the best targeted messages by channel, and they're like, oh, we're the highest deliverability rates. And you're like, right, now we're just totally out of sync with each other. This, is a, this will happen to you by default. This is what you get for free in your company, right? You have to fight against this. Um, and the other piece on this is just that, bear in mind, if one of these functions is not doing its job, somebody else then has to do its job for it. So to give you an example, if you have a misaligned product team, let's say they don't care about the mission, they don't care about the values, right? 
they'll build product that's impossible to market. So now the marketing team has to inherit this monster and try and make sense of it. If the marketing team uh, don't understand what you're doing, they're going to run fictitious marketing campaigns. They're going to be like, check out this product. It does X and Y and Z. But then you, you, you use it, and you're like, it doesn't do any of those things. Uh, because they're basically selling a product that doesn't exist. And lastly, a misaligned sales team will literally sell a product that doesn't exist. And then it's customer support or customer success's problem to try and make up for it. Uh, it's really important to make sure that everyone is on the same page so that, as I said, you can build what you sell and sell what you build. And alignment, if you're a really small startup out there, this section might not have made sense to you just yet. But believe me, you will get there. Uh, you have to build what you sell and sell what you build. And the last piece, which is kind of sums up where we are today in Intercom, um, is this idea of how do you actually like, uh, get forward? Like, well, at some point, you get to this position in Intercom where you know, your job is we, we, we have a good thing going. The company's worth like, over a billion dollars. We've got 500 great people, you know, tens of thousands of customers. Everything's going great. Uh, we have to continue to grow it and maintain it. Right? That's the challenge we have today. And uh, what you realize there is that what got you here won't, got, won't get you there, right? The job when you're trying to start a fire is different than the job when you're trying to keep a fire going, right? It's just a different set of tasks and responsibilities that you have. Uh, and I think the biggest way I, I think about this is that early on, a lot of the product ideas and inspiration, it came from like intuition and gut and feel and like, oh, well, in our old company, we had this problem, so we should try and solve it here. But this will not scale. And actually, even if it did scale, it's not a good idea. Because as we've grown, I've gotten further away from customers. It's unfortunate, but it's true. There are now 500 people between me and a customer. It's just the way it works. Um, and the team have much better gut and intuition for what actually makes sense than I do. So not only, even if I could go and talk to 500 people and tell them all what I think, it wouldn't be a good thing to do. Because I'm probably the dumbest person in the org when it comes to what the customers want at this stage. Um, so. Uh, a lot of this will come down to how you design your roadmap. And today, our roadmap has seven inputs in Intercom. Right? We think about what our current customers want, what, what stuff we have to iterate on, what new ideas we have, what churn, what's causing customers to quit, uh, if there's any product health issues, what sales are saying. If sales are losing deals because of one little thing, we should probably take that into account. What's going on in the competitive landscape? Are we losing our edge, et cetera? And, uh, and how you divide your time here is really, really important. So every, every one of these is an input, but they're not all equal. You have to, at, at different times, some of them are huge and some of them are tiny. Um, so some of them you have to earn. We have to earn the right to work on new ideas, right? Because if product health is bad, like let's say the, the app is getting slow or, or emails aren't sending or whatever, that's a much more important problem than, oh, somebody had a cool idea. That's, you know, we have to, like, we have to you know, keep, look after the business, number one. Uh, so it's just important to think, think about it. Like, you, you don't always have a say in what's in your product roadmap. Sometimes it will write itself, because it's like we have a very, very important problem that needs to be fixed before anyone has any cool ideas. Um, and the other piece I'd say on this is that you need different ways of working for different types of challenges. When you're doing new, cool, open-ended, innovative, speculative stuff, you should uh, accept failure. Understand that you might spend a lot of time on something and then just never ship it because it turned out not to be as cool as you thought. That's totally fine. That's what innovation necessarily is. Um, however, if you're addressing a problem, like you're like, all right, we're fixing this thing. Uh, we have data that says X and we need to fix it. It's a well understood objective. So you need to have a process that makes sure that you can hit it easy. Uh, and 
you, you can't accept failure. And you should follow best practices and get, and get it done quickly. Um, so I think it's just it's important to bear in mind, your product team should have different modes of work. One of them is OK if they disappear for a week and come back and say it didn't work out. The other one, they need to disappear for a week and come back and say problem solved. And that's, that's just the way it is. Um, another piece as you scale is that every piece of your product work will need to eventually connect to revenue in some sense. You should be able to ask your people, how will this make us money? And they should answer, this will decrease customer churn, this will increase conversion, this will increase average revenue per account or whatever. Um, and I would just say lastly, like, adding features to close uh, deals is pretty easy, but it will lead you to a bad place. So don't get into a habit as you grow of just adding features for like just to win customers. It's really dangerous. You end up with a product that looks like this, basically, right? Um, now, actually what this looks like is, hey, we've got like four key features that everyone loves, and then we added all this shit that no one likes. But we added it because we thought we'd get a customer, or we thought it would work out or whatever. Um, it's really, really important to be mindful of that. And this is not some product purist bullshit. Uh, you will pay for all the complexity. The bigger your product gets, the harder it is to run. So none of this, of course, will protect you from competition. My last piece for you is just very quickly on competition. In product, everything you do, everything every one of you do, will either be successful and copied or will fail. And that's the reality that we all live in, because software is really easy to copy. The old moats used to be network effects, economies of scale, uh, patents, high switching costs, etc. They're not going to work as much in the future. The new moats, the things that will protect you, I think, will be make your product a platform, build a community around your product, or build a long-lasting brand that really, really resonates with people. That's stuff that's hard to copy and it's hard to paste. And that's really important. And that's what we do at Intercom. That's why we run events. That's why we have a platform. That's why we bring our community together every year. That's why we do all these books. I've got some books if anyone's interested. So last slide. Uh, to recap, you have to make room for all the inputs in your roadmap. How you weight them is important. Your product team has to tailor its process to match what you're trying to do. Everything that you do has to match to revenue eventually. Uh, be wary of adding incremental features to close deals. And bear in mind, the copycats will come. In short, get everyone aligned around a mission. And the strategy and the decisions, they all take care of themselves. I'm Des Trainer from Intercom. If you want the slides, they'll be on our blog tomorrow. Thank you very much.